Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression, and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. We are your host, Happy Pride. Sadie, how are you doing today? Happy Pride, Gavi. I'm doing I'm doing really well. I am so pumped about this week's episode. Would you like to tell our our listeners what we are doing this week? Yeah, so this week we are publishing an interview that we recorded a couple weeks back with Elizabeth Hunter. She's at That Liz Hunter on social media. You may have known her story because she went mega viral a couple months ago. She was an amazing guest. We had a fantastic conversation about uh, trauma and queerness and fashion. Lots of fashion. She's very cool. You may have seen her on the TikTok. You may have seen her on the Instagram. She is extremely cool person that's that's all i really have to say about her fashion icon um (laughs) yeah and we're gonna get right into that interview but before we do that there's a couple of things that we have to talk about we have some new merch available including pride merch and the profits um on our end from the pride merch uh, we are donating those to point of pride and sadie do you want to tell our listeners a bit more about point of pride 
Yes, Point of Pride is an organization that provides direct assistance to trans and non-binary people in the form of grants for gender-affirming surgeries, grants for electrolysis for trans femme people, funds through which people can access HRT through an app that's able to prescribe in states where access is limited. They distribute free binders and shapewear to trans people all over the country, and they combine all of that direct action with advocacy as well. So we're happy to support them for Pride Month. A lot of big, grand, sweeping stuff and a lot of little, small, individual stuff. That's a good mix right there. The important thing for us was to find an organization that operates nationwide, including in states such as Texas and Florida. So, And and they do that. They achieve that goal. Yeah, so check out our Pride merch that is available. You can go and check out the link in our description. I believe that by this time, we'll definitely have pictures of all that on our Instagram as well, so you can look at the selection that's available. But before we get into our interview, I just need to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults, um, including, you know, IBLP, ATI, um, other forms of fundamentalism. Um, We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat the cults and cult ideologies pose to society as our whole as a whole, excuse me, and it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there's a couple of things that you can do. You can join our Patreon, which is going to be patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where you'll get access to extended and uncensored versions of many of our episodes. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Is that it? Do we have anything else? I think that's it. Let's thank our Faith Promise Missions patrons and get to this interview. All right. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Your names are Alex Todd, Brittany, Carrie R., Crystal Patterson, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah, Hope Norum, Jen Kacharski, Jessica Tambo, Kater Wee, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Lorena Watson, Michaela, Madeline Cusick, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Rachel Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, Reverend Robert Stutes. Thank you so much, Reverend Stutes. Sadie's actual BFF Morgan, Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, Taylor, and Wes the Cowboy. You know, we're going to have to have another one of those Faith Promise Missions to your patron hangout some uh, pretty soon, right? Yeah, we, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm just having yeah. trouble getting it scheduled. Yeah, it's fine. It, 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 we'll we'll make it happen. It's going to be a great time. I've we've been planning out what we're going to do on our Faith Promise Missions to your patron hangout um, Zoom call thing that we do. But yeah, uh, without further ado, let's get into our interview with the one and only Liz Hunter, not the Liz Hunter, that Liz Hunter. <laughs> one theme that we like to continually come back to on the podcast is how people can go through extremely traumatic experiences and then go on to live their absolute best lives. 
I don't like to shy away from the lasting damage that cult abuse can and does inflict on people. But we also want to shout loud and clear that someone who has been damaged and has been hurt in that way can absolutely go on to find real happiness and over time build the life that they want to have and the life that they feel like they deserve. Our guest today is an aspirational example of that. She went from ATI, denim jumpers and turtlenecks and raising younger siblings to not only having a professional job and a writing career and a thriving social media following, but also excellent fashion sense. I'm so happy to bring on our guest for today, Liz Hunter. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you? I am doing fantastic. I am so happy to have you on the show. I think we're doing like a little mutual fangirl moment here. For sure. I absolutely love y'all's show. Um, I came home and like ranted about Jack Hiles to my roommate for like a half an hour one time. I was like, I learned all this stuff that I missed in my childhood about Jack Hiles. So. Oh, that researching for that episode. Oh, that was tough. <laughs> oh, okay. I can imagine. So Liz, would you give us some background on your story? Whatever, whatever you'd like to share with our listeners, especially those who are not as obsessed with you as I am. Okay. Um, So I'm Elizabeth, and I was in foster care till the age of nine when I was rehomed to an IBLP family. They they enrolled in ATI in the second year that ATI was open to enrollment in like the early 1980s or 90s, not sure. I think the first year was 83, and the second would have been 84. Yeah, so... right around the mid 1980s um and they had one child so he's 11 years older than me and so then i was adopted when i was nine uh it's not a legal adoption because it was a rehoming but i'd always considered them my adopted parents so they raised us in ati and my two younger sisters moved in with us three years later they're my biological siblings so we were reunited in their home and I grew up with them, um, was super involved in ATI, I did like all the classic ATI things like pre-Excel, um, Journey to the Heart. Then I did actual Excel and then I taught pre-Excel. And um, eventually when I was 19 or 20, I had a friend who went to headquarters. And from her experience with Bill Gothard, I started to like really question ATI as a community. Um, and I'd really always wanted to go to college. So I went to college when I was 20 and fully accepted that it was a cult my sophomore or junior year and started to come out and just like embrace a different form of Christianity until I graduated school. And then I actually came out as a lesbian in 2020 and I've just been out here thriving as most of us have tried. I mean, thriving as best you can the last couple of years. I I was interested to interview you, like I said, in your introduction, because you really exemplify, I think, the balance of, yes, there was trauma. Yes, it was horrible. Yes, it still affects me. But I've also found some really good things in life. Yeah, yes, for sure. So your um your section of ATI was like the extreme patriarchal dads are in charge of everything. Like your dad's word is law. Is that right? Oh, yeah, for sure. My I think my parents were patriarchal even before ATI. My mom mm-hmm. used to tell us that she met my dad through an independent IFB church, basically. And after she was at church, she came home and she told her mom, I just met the most misogynistic pig I've ever met in my life. Um, oh my. And, then she- <laughs> 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 um, and then somehow two years later, they were married. So, um, so yeah, that, that is, that is how that happened. Um, so I think, 
So ATI kind of just confirmed my dad. Like he he told us that the first time he heard the basic seminar, he wasn't completely comfortable with it. And he was working on a Sunday school bus and the bus fell on him and broke his pelvic bone. He was in the hospital for six weeks in traction. And he sat there thinking about the basic seminar the entire time and decided that God let the bus fall on him because he did not want to join IBLP. And oh, after... And so he felt like that was a rebuke from God. So then he joined, like he fully embraced IBLP. But he, he had a lot of IBLP tendencies from his own like IFB background before then. So it just kind of bolstered his beliefs already. That's, That's incredible. Like three topics that we've talked about on the show and one topic that we're going to talk about soon. <laughs> Like how, the adverse experiences. Yeah, and, the adverse uh, life experiences that like turn somebody way deeper into whatever religion. Um, that's something that I've been meaning to cover for a while, but also the self brainwashing and yes, yeah. And how they like create everything is circumstantial, but then it becomes providential. Yes, there are no circumstances. There are no there's nothing accidental. Um, but we're not Calvinist, but but there's nothing accidental. <laughs> That's yes. very similar to the QAnon thing where it's like there's no such thing as coincidence. Yeah, that's exactly the thing. I think that's one reason why QAnon attracts so many Christians of this particular flavor. Yeah, they're already looking for signs and wonders, so it just like fits into that narrative. Right. And, and we all like a little confirmation bias. So mm. you've spoken a, a good bit on TikTok about like parentification and your kind of your role in the ATI family. What mm -hmm. were what were some of your daily responsibilities growing up? So I was an older sister and my two younger sisters, of course, we were in foster care. So we had a lot of trauma and a lot of mental health issues. And instead of, you know, dealing with that in a healthy manner, I was just made to parent through that mm -hmm. in many ways. And my mom has admitted this openly that she was super overwhelmed by having three kids all of a sudden. And she didn't really know how to parent us. So she kind of, in many ways, like emotionally abandoned us. She would go, like, leave me at home and say, I'm going to Costco and they'd be gone for 10 hours. But that happened constantly. She also, she did a lot of volunteer work and stuff like that. And I was just left home to parent the kids. Well, and my dad worked full time and my mom just like distanced herself either emotionally or physically in a lot of ways. So whatever my sisters did wrong, um, whether that was, you know, not doing their chores, not doing their homework, you know, breaking things or just like breaking rules. I was as equally in trouble as them. If they ever like, broke, like if my sister didn't do her homework, I would get in as much trouble as she did for not doing her homework. And even more so because I was responsible to make sure that she did her responsibilities. So in many ways, I was like the enforcer of my parents' rules and also like had to make sure that they happened or else I was like constantly in trouble because no 13 or 14 year old wants to be like in charge of their siblings. So no. I remember at one point I was like, I am no longer going to be in the room when my sister, you know, does her random stuff that my parents get upset with. So I was, I just kind of like tried to put a lot of space between my sibling and I. Um, and in response to that, my mom tied us together so that I could no longer say I didn't see her, you know, oh, no. make a mess and not clean it up. So that happens. Yes. With a rope. With like actual rope. With like, actual rope, yeah, yes. Man, you're you're doing that what? thing where I like laugh about my trauma, and oh, it's, I do that it's all kind of time. it's kind of funny to like see the Gavi reaction to somebody else's trauma go down exactly the way that it does for me. 
Sadie, yeah. do you remember that Simpsons episode where Homer and Bart get, get chained together with a rope? Yes, that's Heather, I think. That's what I'm envisioning. That is probably pretty accurate. I don't know if Liz has seen that, <laughs> that Simpsons episode. I have not. <laughs> but it's, yeah. And my mom claimed that it was like a yard long so that there was room for us to have our privacy. But that that's a funny like uh, who's trying to convince us. You have your privacy. You can close the door. <laughs> you can close the door with this what? rope tied to you. Oh, good lord! What the, what? Yeah. yeah. I am continually astounded by the things that I hear on this show. This is incredible. Liz, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, um, but I'm so happy to introduce you to Gavi's very validating reactions, and I hope it feels as good for you as it does for me. Like, I know lots of people react that way to the rope, but it's like one of those things that, like, didn't bother me that much. I was like, oh, yeah, she's tied to me. (laughs) Like, it didn't, like, there were so many other worse things that that was, like, one of those things that was like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm stuck with my sister. (laughs) So wait, was was the rope tied around you, like your your ankle, wrist, your oh, waist? Oh, it was my like, wrist. It was our wrist. Yeah, that's really. That, that, I feel like I don't know, Sadie. If you're gonna rank places, if you're gonna be tied to one of your siblings, and you had to rank like where you wanted the rope to be tied, I, I feel like wrist would be near the bottom. See, I you know I disagree. I feel like ankle would be worse because you could trip on things. No, but ankle, you could do like a three-legged race. I feel like you can do that without being tied together. <laughs> yes. Like anytime you want. <laughs> and I, if, you're t- if you're tied to my sister, you'd want to be on the wrist because my sister was very like, oh, I'm just going to run and do this. And, if, and like, you're just going to get dragged along with her. <laughs> so here's the question. Was it dominant hand or non-dominant hand? I, honestly, I don't remember. Because, like, I, I can imagine, like, say you're trying to, like, write something down and she's, like, r- like you're trying to do homework or something and she's, like, running around and, like, pull your arm out of the way. You can't now write that you said that, I definitely remember writing with it on my right hand. I mean, that sounds extremely inconvenient. But like I said, my sister was just, like, yanking me around. So I definitely wouldn't have wanted it on my left hand. So what is what is it like when you look back? Do you have that experience where you look back and you're like, oh, oh, no, that thing that happened to me that I thought was kind of normal all these years was actually super f***ed up. Oh, no. Do you have that like that like experience where it all hits you at once? That happens all the time. The getting tied to my sister that I did not realize that was abusive until I was in therapy. And I was like talking about how responsible I felt for my sister at that time. She had like left home and was, you know, I was just uncomfortable with some of the life choices she had made. And I was like, I feel like I need to stop her or help her. And I was like, yeah, I feel so responsible for her. In fact, like we were tied together. Um, and my therapist was like, wait, hold, wait. <laughs> we'll get into this really. <laughs> Um, and I was, and my friend was at the time going to therapy with me because I was like so timid about it. And we walked out of therapy together, and she turned to me and was like, "Elizabeth, you this happened, and you never thought to mention it." <laughs> and I was like, "No, like why would I have brought this up?" Um, it just never like dawned on me how weird that was. Uh, of course, there was like a lot of things. The thing I tell people all the time when people are like, "Oh, 
I mean, I had a friend the other day who was like, oh, my parents are Asian. And I kind of picture your parents as like tiger parents. And like a lot of the things you say, I think they're probably fair, like strict wise. And I was like, well, that's a nice thought. And I always tell this story to be like, whenever people are like, how culty are your parents? I always tell the story of the unclean sign. I don't know if you've seen that on TikTok, Tati. I don't know if I have. So if you would like to, I would love to hear it. If I have heard it, I'll hear it again. I definitely okay. haven't heard it. Okay. This is a story like I told like three minutes after meeting, probably traumatized my roommates in college. And they were like, what's your relationship with your parents? And I'm like, well, um, so when I was 14, my dad was upset about like how I was washing the dishes. And so he took like an eight and a half, 11 like pieces of cardboard, like that was pretty thick. So it was not just a piece of paper. And he wrote in black Sharpie unclean on it. And then he made me wear it around my neck as a sign all summer long. So like to the 4th oh, of no. July grade, I was wearing it to like church all summer long to like homeschool events. Yeah, that was like the worst summer of my life. So I'm genuinely shocked by that one. And there's not much that shocks me anymore. Question. Yeah. Do you, do you sell merch? <laughs> I have occasionally. Yes. Because I was going to say that like if you sold unclean merch, like you know with the, with the like the cardboard and have it say like unclean like that design, sell that as a t- I feel like people would buy that. I <laughs> monetize your trauma. <laughs> I feel like it's a little too traumatic. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not over that one. <laughs> You should make one. You should well. You should make a T-shirt that looks like a cardboard sign, and it says "perfect" or "loved" or like something positive. Yeah, I like I like that idea. Yeah, there we go. You see, when your when your trauma is too traumatic to monetize, that's when you (laughs) lean into like the nice stuff. (laughs) That's Ah. a good time. Yes. So when you're talking about um, your siblings not doing their homework and getting in trouble for that, that's homeschool, right? Yes, we were homeschooled. Did you do the the wisdom booklets curriculum and did you have something else in addition to that? So we used the wisdom booklets and family devotions and then we kind of were supposed to read them. And occasionally my mom would get like super inspired and like try to use them as a textbook. I used it as a textbook a lot because I thought they were really interesting and I loved like the history sections of them. Looking back, I'm kind of like horrified by the history sections, but at the time they were super fun. And then um, on, on top of the wisdom booklets, we use Rod and Staff, which is a Mennonite curriculum for English and math. And we used Bob Jones textbooks for history and reading comprehension, some Pensacola textbooks, and whatever else my mom thought looked interesting. So we used Matthew C. That's how the only way I finished algebra was Matthew C. And with science, I think we used some rod and staff books, but I really never took a science class. And uh, at one point, I was at a used bookstore, and I found a European history textbook from 1915 that was like a Texas, like old textbook, like in the state of Texas. And I just grabbed it. And I was like, oh, mom, can I do this for a semester? And my mom was like, sure. So I went through this textbook and did all the homework. And then at the end of the semester, I like handed all the homework to my mom. And she was like, this looks fine. I'll give you an A. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you deserved the A, and I so identify with like being so hungry for knowledge that even the wisdom books seem interesting. 
<laughs> yes. What's the, what's the best thing that you've ever read or the worst thing or most ridiculous thing that you've ever read in one of Bill Gothard's wisdom, wisdom booklets? So the thing that sticks with me that I used to explain how bad the wisdom booklets were is the blessed are the meek in spirit for they shall inherit the earth. And the history section contrasted the French and the American Revolution and said that the French Revolution went wrong because they weren't meek in spirit like the Americans. Uh, um, I yep, yeah, I, I remember seeing that prepping for our wisdom booklet episodes. A, oh, good lord! That is a very weird take. That I yeah, mm. yeah, it definitely is. Especially, I absolutely the French Revolution is my favorite time period in history. So now it's like really funny that that's basically the only thing I can remember from the wisdom booklet. But but yeah. So you mentioned that you never took a science class. Um, what other gaps did homeschool leave for you? I couldn't do math to save my life to this day. Basically, I, I started college without like understanding how to do homework and how to actually successfully do it. I took a remedial math class, but that's all the math I took in school. And I don't really like I took it and I passed it. But like if I ever want to do like a political science master's, it's going to be a super struggle to do statistics because I just don't remember any math. And I'm, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm bad at math, but I'm really bad at math. Um, my parents had me do four different algebra books to try to pass algebra because I never had a teacher. I just like would read the books and try to do it. And it's just that ingrained so much bad habits when it comes to mm-hmm. like trying to learn math that it's like almost impossible to overcome. And math is so hard. Like, it's naturally more difficult for some people to begin with. But it's also one of those things, if you don't have a good foundation when you're really, really young, it is so hard. It's so much harder to learn as an older teenager or an adult. It's just one of those. There are topics that you can get caught up on easily, and math is not one of them in my experience. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And then when it comes to, like, other basic subjects like English, um, with English, we did Rod and Staff, which is all grammar. And then I never read anything like literature wise until college and even then i was like oh i found a tale of two cities in the library and i was like oh i'll read this um and then it's like my favorite book ever <laughs> but basically no literature there's nothing like we didn't read like i don't know i couldn't like it's like really hard to explain like i was familiar because i absorbed it through other books but like my literature was like reading elsie dinsmore which is like reconstruction BS about like glorification. Yes, of I read stuff. all of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I thought those were like, I was like, I'm reading classics. And like, no, you were just reading racist dribble. But, but yeah. Yeah, I, I read all of the, we're going to take a, a, a sidebar into Elsie Densmore. <laughs> That's okay. Because I read all of those. Uh, I thought that Elsie was such a role model because of how she made herself sick because she thought her father wasn't saved because he, I, I don't know, um, ate meat and butter? No, he read the newspapers on Sundays, on the Sabbath. Right, right. And he and wanted her to play like, piano on the Sabbath. And then she was like, she like dies. <laughs> Come back to the life. I remember that. Oh, no. I was so emotional. What? I was reading... So she like what is it, what is this book? So it, it's a, it's a children's book. It, it's like a, like an older readers. It's on like the same grade level roughly as Harry Potter, I would think. It's well, about it's, a, it's very similar to Little Women, and like the, yes. it was written at the same time. And actually, the ranking of like top three book bestsellers in the U.S. at the time was like the Bible, Little Women, and Elsie Densmore. Okay, but Little Women slaps. That book is great. Yes, and Elsie so, Densmore does awesome. not. The author who wrote Elsie Dinsmore was like, Little Woman is 
anti-slavery, so I'm going to write my own book that is Presbyterian and pro-slavery. Oh, yeah. that's so it's, not- a, it's about a little girl growing <laughs> up um, in a very, very privileged family on a plantation in the South, and you know all all of her relatives are slaveholders, and she is okay with slavery, but thinks that reading newspapers on Sunday or playing piano on Sunday is a sin. So she's extremely concerned about her father's salvation because he reads newspapers on Sundays and participates in other sinful activities. But not owning slaves. And then in the second book, her father literally shuns her for not for being a Christian. And like she almost dies of like being upset by being shunned. And then her father gets saved. And then somehow miraculously, she literally comes back to life after her dad almost Right, they were like digging her grave, and but she comes back to life, and then she grows up to marry her father's best friend, who is like the same age as her dad. Ew. Yeah, he, yep. he was twenty-seven, what? and she was eight when they met. Yeah. Are you sure that they wrote these books like in uh, on purpose to be like pro-slavery, or did they write them like like to be like this is uh, like I feel like this is like a parody? No, so, it is real. Elsie herself, Elsie and Elsie is a slave owner because her dad owned slaves, her hus- husband owned slaves, and her mother died when she was a child, and she inherits her mother's Louisiana plantation, and and like right before the Civil War, sells some of the land, but not the slaves, and goes to Europe and spends the Civil War in Europe because she can, she can afford that. Yikes. Yeah, it is. It is exceptionally terrible literature. And then after the Civil War, she comes back and all of her previously enslaved Africans choose to work for her. She just pays them now. Right. Because she's such a good Christian person. And they're so thankful. Sorry, I'm going to gag saying this. They're so thankful that she brought them to America so they could learn about Jesus. Yeah. And she like has Sunday services with all of her formerly enslaved people. Truly disgusting. This is the height of literature. Um, last uh, on on the episode last week, Liz, you haven't heard this yet. Uh, maybe it probably ended up on Patreon. Sadie and I had an extended discussion on the Jesus metaphors in the Chronicles of Narnia, but this seems like significantly like, worse. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Like, give me yeah. Like I, I was saying that I, I mean Chronicles of Narnia. I, I'm just kind of eh on it. Like give me C.S. Lewis all day over whatever this. Sh- well, at least C.S. Lewis believed in like universal salvation and like was a decent person. <laughs> <laughs> the author this Martha Finley offered, oh my god I forgot this so I looked it up Martha Finley the author wrote 28 Elsie books oh my I god I've read all of them she followed uh, Elsie until like her and then she started like picking up the stories of like Elsie's children and grandchildren yeah so the books were supposed to be they were staunchly anti-Catholic like Catholics were demonic and they were like re they wanted to glorify the old south as like good christian families who were just being persecuted by the yankees basically mm-hmm. is the point of the books so if your family is involved in like the rise of like the ku klux klan in like the 1920s these are the books you're going to be giving your children to yeah definitely teach them sure. about their heritage and i mentioned this <laughs> in the vision for an forum episode these the modern the only modern pressing of these books that I am aware of is sold through the Vision Forum catalogs or was sold through the Vision Forum catalogs. Well, have you seen the ones that were adapted, like the adapted Elsie books? Because there's the adapted Elsie ones, um, and then the her cousin who is anti. Who, this is really interesting because she has an anti. Like um, her cousin is from 
Iowa or whatever and like lives on the frontier and it's like anti-slavery actually. Oh, it's this a life of faith. Oh, it's a life of faith. Um, that it's like a re it's totally different. Like they're, it's like American girl books, but they were with all of the characters that Martha Finley wrote. I may have, I may have read that. It seems vaguely, vaguely familiar. So what else? And, okay. So, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I can go on to Elsie like forever. And I forgot that she even made the a life of faith series even had one of Elsie's slaves, like enslaved people, a book series from her perspective. This this sounds uncomfortably familiar, but I can't quite pull it out of my brain. <laughs> yeah. I if anybody's optioned the rights to Elsie Densmore yet uh, to to make it into like a television program. Um, oh my goodness! I gouged my eyes out. I bet some Vision Forum person has the rights. I would bet anything. So, <sighs> so what did you read other than A Tale of Two Cities? What did you read to kind of re-educate yourself when you were getting out of this place where there was no literature? Oh, yeah. So I started at Bob Jones in 2015, and I was 20. And um, I really, Bob Jones, was, Bob Jones was like super fundamentalist, super Christian. But it was like really good for me because several of the professors were like very forward with me and were like, your parents are in a cult. And just like very, they It they was didn't, a step out. Yeah, they, and they were, like, very open about that. And um, I think the best class I ever took was Incarnation in the Humanities, which was by um, this professor, Dr. Erin Naylor. She's been called one of the top ten threats to fundamentalism in the U.S. She's absolutely hilarious. But she was, like, definitely a very different kind of Bob Jones professor. Um, and I forget who called her that, but some IFB pastor. And um, this class was so good because it, like, went into, like, how the life of like Jesus's incarnation changes the way we live. And it was basically like an exploration of arts and like culture. And I remember we watched Babette's Feast and like read a bunch of like, um, just like really, I can't even think of her name, but the writer that, Oh, Mary Oliver, everybody, (laughs) Mary Oliver was pretty predominant in that class. And it just like reoriented how I viewed art and culture in a way that I, I'd always felt guilty reading anything that wasn't the Bible or like strictly like Christian. And I walked away from that. Like, it's okay to enjoy life. It's not, you I shouldn't feel guilty about like enjoying good things. Um, And that was something like I had never been able to like watch a movie or anything without like feeling like I had to justify it. Like, how I was learning from it or what like morality lesson I was learning from it. And I remember my senior year, like I would suggest a movie or something to my parents. I would be like, Oh, we should, when I visit, like I have Netflix, we should watch something. And my parents were always like, but what, like, what's the Christian point of this? And like, I was able through like college and like rediscovering my faith to like find, realize like, I don't have to, everything isn't like a Christian performance in a way. Of course, there were like bad moments at Bob Jones. Like, I almost got kicked out my senior year because I was realizing I was gay and like that wasn't great. But it allowed me to like create a faith that was meant for me and not religion that was a tool for control. Oh, that was that was a perfect statement. I love that. So, can you talk a little bit about coming out? Like, how was your identity? as a lesbian, like how is how does that play into the coming out process? We're really interested in like, was this a part of the reason that you got out or was it something that came after? It was definitely something that came after because my junior year, my mom and I got in a huge argument about um, interracial marriages. My mom thinks black and white people should not marry. And I strongly disagree yeah. with her about that. 
<laughs> and we, we we had this like full on fight about it. And at the end of the fight, my mom was like, well, when your dad picks you out a husband, I can tell you he's not going to pick a black man. And I was so upset with that statement. And I was like, well, number one, I don't know that I want a husband. And number two, dad is not picking out a me husband no matter what. Um, but at the time, I was like barely cognizant that I was not straight. I thought maybe I was bisexual. And like, I knew I, like, I didn't think that like, gay people were going to hell or anything like that. My junior year, I really started to realize that I couldn't say to a person, like a queer person, I couldn't say, oh, I think your lifestyle is wrong. Like I couldn't, like I started to realize I didn't think that being gay was wrong. Um, and once I realized that, which was like October, by February, I was like, I'm definitely not straight. I'm not sure what I am, but I'm not straight. I don't think I can marry a man. I would like to marry a man, so I don't have to deal with coming out, but I don't think I can. And then I started my senior year, like, realizing I was not straight. And then I almost got kicked out of college. So, like, I put all those questions aside and just, like, finished my senior year of college, just, like, pushed my way through it. And then I went and worked at Disney World, which was super fun and super queer and met a bunch of gay friends. And like, by the time I got my full-time job in January, so I graduated in May, worked at Disney till January, I was like, okay, I'm definitely a lesbian. Um, but I think I called myself a lesbian for the first time in like November of 2019, because I kept saying that I was queer or I might be bi, but I was like, I wanted to leave the option open to never have to come out by like, if I was bi, I could marry a guy and like, never have to worry about like coming out to my parents or leaving my church because they would just assume I was straight. Um, but after I was left my church for eight months while I was at Disney, I realized that I could never go back and just like walk in the door and accept the theology. So I was like, it's, you know, I am who I am and I don't agree with this theology. And it all came together because when I moved back to my college town to take the job I currently have, it left the church within like the pandemic happened. So it like messed up the timeline, but I pretty much immediately was no longer act like engaged in church. And I had several people at the church ask me like, are you like, are you a homosexual? Like I got asked that a lot. And I was like, yes, but let's talk about that later. Like, let me leave the church and then we can talk about that. That's a very weird question to ask somebody, no matter what, like, just, I know. If you're so not strange. in a cult, it's a weird, yeah, it's a weird yeah. question. You can't just walk up to somebody and say, "Are you a homosexual?" <laughs> well, like, you can't if you're in a cult. I know. Well, and several of the church members had seen that I had like gone to Orlando Pride because I went to Pride in October because that's when Orlando has their Pride. It's just way too hot to have Pride in June in Florida. And like I posted on social media that I was at Pride, and they were like, "Oh dear, red flags, Elizabeth, it's a heretic." So, yeah. <laughs> So what was your first experience like at Pride? Because uh, um, you don't know this at the time. We Sadie and I just recorded an episode about uh, what to do at Pride. What was your first experience like at Pride? Okay, so this sounds so funny, but my first Pride, I was working for Disney. So I like was in the parade and like walking for Mickey Mouse, <laughs> like dressed up like gay Mickey Mouse, basically. Um, so that was my first <laughs> Adorable. <laughs> So you got to play a character. You got to dress up as Mickey Mouse at Disney. No, no, I was in like this T-shirt with like the the Disney logo that was like 
dressed in rainbow colors, but there was like 150 Disney workers. Like we were all dressed in the same outfit and we're like saying hi to everybody. I like gave everybody high fives. We're like, I like started in the middle of the street because we were like all walking as a group. And then I was like, this is boring. <laughs> so I like walked to the edge of the crowd. It was like so, so cool to interact with the crowd. And then I like high fived everybody as I was like walking by. Um, and then I was like running by at some point and then I like ran too much because I was like super hyper and then had to like circle back. Anyway, I was like wildly hyper, but I like had woke, uh, I had started work at 4 a.m. that morning and the parade was like at 3 p.m. So I'd gone to work from 4 to noon and then gone straight to downtown Orlando. So I was like running on caffeine. It was crazy. That sounds like a, that sounds like an extremely good time. And I think it's really interesting that both of us went to Pride for the first time because we were working for a company. You'll hear this in the episode that comes out the week before your episode, but I went for the first time because the company I was working for had a booth at the festival that we have downtown. And it was like, it was like an excuse to go to Pride. It gave me that little boost of confidence that I needed to actually attend. Yeah. It it definitely felt safer to go with the company than on my own or even with my friends. Um, like I had friends who went, but like going with like the whole Disney brand, it felt like I was there for Disney and not like, because I like was necessarily not because I am like, they, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, it's Disney volunteers and it's spelled volun like volunteers, like E-A-R-S because Disney, Disney spells everything. Right, like, ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, I'm a volunteer. I'm not gay. I just I think that that coming out is difficult for everybody. And even people who are raised in a secular environment or an affirming environment, that can still be a tough conversation to have. And then for people like us who were raised in oppressive religious groups, there's this whole extra layer to, to all of that. And I really identify with how the first step is, well, I can't say for sure that LGBT people are sinful. And then the next step is like, no, I fully accept LGBT people. And then the next step is, oh, I am LGBT people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that was very much my progression as well. And that's why I think I try so hard to work with people who are still way back at step one of like, I don't think it's a sin, but I need somebody to talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. That's why I try to focus so hard on that set of people, because I I think like if you can make that step, you're going to get where you're supposed to be. Oh, yeah, for sure. I and then when I was ready to like come out publicly, I actually start I went through a therapist who specialized in like helping people come out and the way she worked through like why I was doing it, my motivations, like how I wanted to foresee my future like what did coming out mean to me like grounding my expectations and what the reality of coming out actually would look like in my life that was really good because you like watch a lot of movies and you're like oh wow that's I guess what it's supposed to be and then it's nothing like most movies show so that was really good and I think it helped me work through a lot of like religious angles that were really toxic in a way and just like keeping me from living out what I wanted to experience my life fully. So what sort of beliefs did you have about yourself that you had to deconstruct uh, with regards to uh, coming to this realization about yourself? Well, I would say, like, first and foremost, that, like, your desires are inherently sinful and your heart is deceitful above all means and they're desperately wicked and you can't trust your heart. That is, like, the number one thing that I remember just being hammered over and over again as a child, like, 
that's why we didn't watch Disney movies, as my dad would say. You know, Disney says, follow your heart. And that is the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Your heart is not to be trusted. Your feelings are not valid. And therefore, all of your reaction to like my beliefs and my rules is invalid because it's dictated by your feelings and your feelings are not worthy of consideration. So that is a, like a huge overarching theme of my childhood is like feelings do not matter and coming to terms with my sexuality and how I felt about religion. I had to deconstruct that because otherwise I was constantly gaslighting myself into thinking that my own discomfort and unhappiness was not valid and not to be taken into account. That's such a huge part of the cult brainwashing. That's Yeah, oh, if you want something or desire something, it is probably sinful. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like your desires are like con- <laughs> they like hammer that all the time. Like what you want is not good for you. You shouldn't want it. Mm-hmm. So then if you want anything, even like to go to college, or if you realize that your sexuality and your gender is anything other than a straight cis person, then you get confirmation. Oh, yeah, I want that. Therefore, it must be sinful. Yeah, all of that. All of that describes the reaction to my like existing as myself and like what and living out what fulfills me, I should say, I guess. It makes me so happy that you were able to break through that. I know that I know that that's extremely difficult. It brings me joy. Yeah, I think for me, it's like I had to like rework my. I think I had to do it from a faith perspective, which is really interesting now because I don't really claim religion in any way. But for me, I I was like, well, God created me, and God says His creation is good, so therefore my feelings are good because He created them. Mm-hmm. And if uh, once I started to believe that, it like really liberated me. And then now I really I don't really know if there's a higher power and like what I believe about that but leaving like a really strict conservative mindset of who God was into a more progressive like opening mindset was like a huge leap and took like three years fully to get to that point and I think that is the excuse me that is the stopping point for a lot of people in deconstruction and that is okay and good And then that's just the jumping off point for other people like you in deconstruction. And that is okay and valid and good. But I think getting getting people to that point of like, God made me and I am okay is so valuable because that gives people that foundation to kind of choose their path from there. I think we are about halfway through our time. Let's take a quick break so we can take up the offering and we'll come back to talk about more life post-cult. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. So we are back continuing our interview today. The The next question I had for you, Liz, was I, I want to talk about some of the videos you've made about your job. They're really inspiring to me. I feel like it is such a neat thing to see former cult members who are just able to hack it in a professional space. There are so many things about going into a, a non-cult-affiliated workplace that are terrifying and confusing for people like us. <laughs> yes, I, I, know, I would agree. Yeah, for me, it was like the social anxiety of not knowing how to act in the real world. And then I also had a very strong fear of non-cult men. Would you be willing to share, like, what were some of the obstacles for you about getting your first non-cult jobs? Um, so I think I'm a little bit different when it comes to just being so extremely extroverted. I think part of it is being in foster care and being a redhead. So literally every time I met someone, you know, my entire life, people would interact with me. You know, you don't have parents. Like, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> So it's always like, oh, these are my adoptive parents and like re-explaining my life story to everyone I met. And then also being a redhead, I constantly engage with people whenever I was out in public um, who just like to talk to me. So I think I never really had a lot of social anxiety because I was like constantly interacting with people and I just developed this like really outgoing personality. Um, and to tell you, like interacting with people was crazy. Like when I was like 15, we were at a restaurant, my entire family was sitting around this restaurant and an older couple left. And as they left, they complimented the entire family. They were like, Oh, we love your kids and your y'all look beautiful. And my dad is like, Oh, thanks. And then they go, but except the redhead. Um, what? So, yeah. so I was like, and I, I know it's like teasing, like, but it was like constant. And this is like my experience is who I am. It's like, I'm constantly, people are engaging with me, even when I don't necessarily want to engage with them. So when it comes, when it came to college and like starting life outside of like my cult childhood and parents, I was like, I've always like thrown myself into social situations and I am not very socially aware. I like have no social cues <laughs> um, and it doesn't bother me. So I'll, later I'll be like, dang, that was awkward, but I won't notice it in the moment. So I'm really lucky in that way. Um, I think part of it is either ADHD or maybe autism, but I was not diagnosed with autism. And I did talk to one doctor about it. And the doctor was like, well, you seem to have a fine life. So I don't see the point in diagnosing you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> very interesting. Um, which is true. Like, <laughs> and, and it's just funny that that was the response. I still am thinking about that six weeks later. And then also college was really good. So school like really grew me out of my nutshell. When I started school, my we had like societies at school, which is Bob Jones version of sororities. And I was the most awkward homeschooler that you've ever met. And I was talking to my roommate who is 
a really nice person, but we, she didn't know me that well. And I was like, oh, should I join your society? And she kind of looked at me and she's like, I don't think we're the ones for you. <laughs> um, oh. because, <laughs> because she was like, let's just going to join me. Everybody thought of me as like a super awkward homeschooler. And then I remember I bought my like first outfit six weeks into school that my mom had not picked out and like learned to not wear high heels and socks and oh, learned how man. to like put on makeup. Like I was so awkward. Like y'all would not believe how awkward I was. I also, I have these horrific pictures that are so embarrassing. I can't show them, but my bangs were cut like two, like an inch above my eyebrows. They were horrific. Um, and I, because I started, I started out as an education major and then I switched to journalism and I absorbed a lot of like TV shows with journalism journalists. So I watched the newsroom, which is on HBO and I loved Scandal with Olivia Pope. I was like, maybe I'll go to law school. So I like absorbed all these TV shows and then like kind of learned to mimic, which is another sign of probable, probable autism. But I learned to mimic the behaviors that I wanted to have in a career. So, and I think that is, and then I always pushed myself. So I went to China my between my sophomore and junior year and taught English in China for uh, six weeks. I worked in Philadelphia for two summers with like child evangelism fellowship, which was, I don't agree with them anymore, but at the time I was like, yes, I agree with this. So, and then my last year I worked at the Y and then I interned with a local TV station. So I was like constantly putting myself out there and I was super awkward around guys. Like a guy would, I was like, every time a guy would like start to talk to me, I would be like, I'm not supposed to make eye contact with people I'm not married to, um, which is something my mom used to wow. tell me. Um, so, yeah. that far. So, it, so Sadie, you had the, the no touching, which, you know, that's like pretty extreme, but you had no eye contact. Yeah. Yeah. That was from, I was once talking to a guy at my parents' church and I noticed he was not making eye contact with me. So I was like 18 and I like asked my mom, I was like, is it inappropriate to make eye contact with people before I'm married? And she said, well, the eyes are the windows of soul. So you don't want to be sharing your soul with anybody who you're not married. You're not going to marry. So. Oh my God. Okay. I am, I am such an eye contact slut and I am just learning about it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Apparently. My soul oh my is just spread so many places. <laughs> Way to the right. day. That is, yeah, that is I, just. Oi, oi, oi. That is such a, a different reaction to what a lot of people have with the social anxiety or like realizing that they are very, very awkward. And I think it's a good place to point out that this doesn't affect everybody the same. It's not that. Oh, yeah. it, you're not wrong because you had an atypical reaction to that because people's reactions to PTSD can be extremely different from each other. I do want to say though, that uh, it is clear from Liz's story and from Sadie's story that teaching yourself how to uh, interact with other people through watching television, 100% success rate would recommend. Try to try. <laughs> oh, yes. Very tried and true. <laughs> just, just pick the right TV shows. <laughs> I remember I told my, I started watching The Office, like my junior year of college, I think it was. And I was like, I don't get it. And my brother said, you need to work in an office for a week and then you'll get it. <laughs> and then I actually, after my, in, well, in the middle of like my internship post-college, like, so I'd worked in a, in the TV newsroom for like six weeks. And then I was working at Disney and I started watching it again. And it just like all the humor all clicked. And I, and I wonder how much of it was true. Like my brother was like, once you work around other people, you understand like office humor. 
but yeah, it's just like constantly for me, it's like, I am terribly awkward, <laughs> but I just like keep putting myself out there and eventually it irons its way out. And then I think people recognize that I don't mean to be awkward. I'm not like hope hurting them or anything. But it, it does make it hard because, like, every workplace I've worked, I've struggled to make friends and I feel like the social outcast at work. Um, and that is no fun. It sounds like the plan of just going for things, kind of reckless abandon and putting yourself out there and just kind of pushing yourself to do things really worked out for you. <laughs> yes, I have done that my entire life. I just, like, jump and then hope I land. <laughs> when I put in my... um when I quit working at Disney, so I quit my job at Disney on the 10th and started my job in Greenville on the 18th, and I had no place to live. So I got in the car, and I started driving to South Carolina, and on the way, I was like, hopefully I'll know where I'm sleeping tonight, literally what happened. And then on the way, someone had seen on social media that I was moving back, and they called me, and they were like, do you have a place to sleep tonight? And I said, no. And they were like, well, I'll call someone else, and hopefully... I think you can stay there. And that is literally how I found a bed for a week. And then I went around and went to different apartments until I found an apartment. Wow. That's incredible. That is like, that is really gutsy that I wouldn't do that. I looking back, I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I ever did. (laughs) It's like, why did I get in the car to drive to town to like a new town without knowing where I was going to sleep that night? Like, why would I do that? Well, I think that, I think that, um, Number one, growing up in a cult can skew your perception of what is and isn't a good idea and what is and isn't safe. Because if you're not, if you're not taught how to plan for things like that growing up, then when you actually have to do them, people tend to either be a little too reckless or a little too cautious. Oh, yeah. I do. And I err way on the reckless side over the cautious side. And I err way on the cautious <laughs> side. Those are both valid reactions. But I really admire your confidence. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. And I would say that I've had many interactions that are bit, could have been extremely dangerous. But I do... Um, I, I want to say to the audience listening that I'm not stupid. Like, do not try to stalk me because you think I'm going to fall for it. Like, I'm not that stupid. But I want to say that I've done a lot of dumb, dumb things with strangers because I didn't think it through. Um, because my parents, out, everyone around me growing up was not a stranger. Like, my parents only, we only interacted with people that we knew and could completely trust. So, like, one time my car breaks down in the middle of North Carolina and I was like on the phone with AAA, like trying to figure out what to do. And a random guy pulls up and was like, hi, I think, I think I know what's wrong with your car. Do you want to ride to AutoZone and we can get the parts? And I said, sure. And I got in this guy's car oh, no. and we drove to AutoZone and we got the parts and we drove back and he fixed my car. And I don't have a, I don't even know what his name was. <laughs> like, like, what was I doing? I was not expecting that story to end that way. My God. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm, al- that- I'm alive. That's, that's the good part of the story. I'm alive. okay but gavi you've heard you've heard my story like that's how i met my husband like i met a guy who lived in my apartment (laughs) building and i was like yeah sure i want to come over to your apartment with your two male friends there and listen to music this seems like a good idea i don't know any of you three male people and i'm just gonna go in your apartment with you wow and it turned out fine interesting it's kind of interesting because every time we were in circumstances like that growing up, my parents are like, oh, we're going to pray and God is going to send a random stranger to help us out. Or, you know, so mm-hmm. you view everything as prob- like, oh, this is this is good. And you don't think like there was never a time that my parents were like, this is not safe because God was working it out. So I never developed a sense of like, oh, I needed 
protect myself. I am developing that a lot more like now, but that I took a long time to build that. So what's another thing that you've done that you just look back on and you're just like, wow, that was an incredibly terrible idea. I think applying to college without having like any, like I had no idea how my parents were going to react when I just like randomly went online and was like, I'm applying to college today. And then after I got accepted, I was like, I was accepted to college, mom and dad. <laughs> and, they, and like, they were completely shocked. Like that could have gone horrifically. I, I tend to make a lot of decisions and then later realize I should have thought them through, <laughs> whether they're financial or personal safety decisions. I just tend to do a lot at the spur of the moment and hope it works out which I am trying to stop myself from doing. For example, like my current job, I'm quitting in two weeks, but I gave 60 days notice so that I had some backup. Like I'm not you know, going to walk in and not have a job the next day. So I had the time to like actually think through and plan the move instead of just like randomly being homeless and jobless in the same week. So I want to point out that I think some level of that can be normal for people who get out of cults, um, just not knowing how to prepare for life decisions, not knowing how to take care of your personal safety, doing things that you later realize were not the safest or the smartest thing to do, but that you you don't have to regret the thing that you did. You don't have to beat yourself up over it. And you don't have to fix this tendency overnight. You just have to grow into making safer and smarter decisions. Like you don't have to I, you don't have to beat yourself up over, oh my God, that was so dumb. I can't believe I did that. You can just kind of laugh, move on, and do a little bit better the next time. Yeah. And I think part a good w- practice is not only like not keeping that to yourself, not keeping that, oh, I was so like silly or dumb or reckless, but like sharing that with your friends and like talking through like what made led you to coming to that decision. Because once like once I've talked through a lot of those decisions and like what happened. I realized what led me to that, making that quick, fast decision. And it helps me not do that again in the future. And also That's before so I make make a decision, a lot of the times now, bef- like before I actually make the decision, I talk through what I'm thinking. And my friend, a lot of times my friends are very, like, I can tell what, if they think it's a good idea or not. And I, like, I have amazing friends. That has been really helpful because I feel like before I developed a lot of friends post, like leaving my parents' house and things, It was just me and the world. And now I have like a really good circle of people that I can rely on who are super safe and won't judge me for like making dumb decisions, but will help me work through like what the process is that led me to what I think I need to do. Having a good support system is amazing. But that is, I'm I'm really glad that you have that to help. So let's talk about an area where it is generally a great idea to take some risks, uh, which is fashion. So oh, yeah. like I like I mentioned in your introduction, I I love your sense of style. You have a defined sense of style. You really know how to <clears throat> fit like your body shape and your coloring. You you really just seem to be keyed in on that. How can you talk about experimenting with fashion and how you found your sense of style after years of having your clothing so tightly controlled? Yes. So like you said, my clothing was extremely regimented by my mom. It was very dowdy, very potato sack-esque. And I'd always loved, because I loved history. So I had people from history that I really loved their fashion and sense of style. And I wanted to dress like them. So randomly, I really am obsessed with Marie Antoinette. Like my first crush ever was probably Marie Antoinette. Aww, and I know like, 
<laughs> so um, I made a lot of historical costuming as a teenager and like this like Rococo, like colonial era fashion. I absolutely loved it. Of course, that is not what I wear every day, but it, like I developed a sense of like what I liked and like the florals and the colors and that sort of thing. And it also like within my cult group, like wearing historical clothing wasn't like a bad thing. Like I could make as much as I wanted and do whatever I wanted with it. And it just allowed me to explore that sense of like what made me happy and brought me joy. And then I had always, always loved Jackie Kennedy. So I wanted her haircut. I wanted her, I wanted her clothes. I like was obsessed with Jackie Kennedy. So I'd always said when I was, I would think to myself, like as a teenager especially I was like when I'm married I'm gonna cut my hair short like Jackie and I'm gonna wear clothes like Jackie Kennedy and like I loved like a like a suit coat and I like really great pencil skirt and just like double-breasted coats and all that sort of fashion and so when I got to college a lot of people make fun of me but I wore a suit coat all the time in school I was wearing like the dowdiest clothes and I would have my little tan jacket that I found that was a suit coat my roommate and I actually went to college together and she has a picture of me in like a society event and I'm like which is like our sorority things I'm wearing everybody else is like casual Friday wearing jeans and t-shirts and I'm in jeans and a suit coat oh. um so that was I was like that is who I wanted to be and then in school, of course, I watched Scandal and that really, like Olivia Pope really shaped, like Olivia Pope became like my third icon. I was like, I'm going to mix. So basically I was like, I'm going to mix Olivia Pope and Jackie Kennedy together. I'm going to dress like them. And honestly, I think my wardrobe really fits that. So when I started- I was, I was just going to say, no, you, no, you nailed that. <laughs> oh yeah. So like when I started um, working full time, I love like- loft i know people think loft is like for old people but um i really like make it work i wear a lot of petite styles and then i just like mix it with stuff i find at like forever 21 which sounds kind of funny but it kind of works for me so um i also have discovered a lot of brands that i really like like amaryllis is one mod cloth is another and just like mixing like vintage with business casual has been like a go-to for me. And of course, I really found the colors that work best for me, which is um, some neutrals and like rose gold and like really great greens and browns. I think that finding a brand that is consistently always going to work for you is is such a game changer. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, Mine for sure. is made well. Like as much as I can buy on sale, because I don't like paying full price for anything, much less made well, because that's expensive. But I buy like secondhand and on sale, and I'm working towards having like half of my wardrobe be made well, because it just it's always gonna the colors that they use look good on me, the shapes that they use look good on me, and finding that brand can just oh, it's life changing. I think I have them on my like oh, I want to shop there sometime. I haven't lately shopped there. I've been doing a lot of sales, and I haven't. Really, I I really struggle to trust online sizing for me. So, mm -hmm. and to not oh, if I can't shop in person, definitely suggest checking them out. Um, if I come across any like really good sales there or something, I'll send them to you. <laughs> do you do your own tailoring? Do I? I actually I do not bother with tailoring my clothes. I really should, but I have a lot of like some things that I could take in or like hem differently. And I would like to, I just like financially haven't been able to like take it to a tailor and I don't have a sew, like any sewing materials right now. Oh, okay. I just uh, assumed 
that you would do that yourself because of your uh, your your, your uh, costuming. So funny story. When I was like a junior or senior, I had inherited my grandmother's sewing machine, which is from the 1960s, super heavy, all metal. It was like this orangutan thing to move around. And I had was thinking about it. And my mom was like, do you want this? Like, do you want to take it when you graduate? Like, what do you want to do? And I like writing. And a lot of my creativity focused on writing. And so I said to my mom, actually really hurt my mom's feelings. I was like, I really don't want to do sewing anymore because that takes so much creativity. And I want to actually focus my creativity on writing. So I am not taking my grandmother's sewing machine. And my mom, like that broke my mom's heart, but it was a good decision for me. Like I do not have time to like both do costuming anymore and all the other things I do. I would actually like to get like a little, like those really cheap sewing machines, like actually do a few I'm thinking, but that took like six years to come to that decision. Sewing was really like really hard as a teenager because like besides costuming, it was like a way to reform all of our clothes to make them trendy approved. So it was kind of like I didn't enjoy it past like I would make costumes and then also be like adding hems and like modesty pieces to all my t-shirts and whatever. And it just became intermixed with that. So I, I just really needed like a decade, like literally a 10 year break from it to like not have it be like something that, that was like mixed up with like, you need to fix this so you can wear it to church, you know? That's extremely relatable. So um, if this, if this question is too much in any way, feel free to let me know, but were there any mental hurdles as far as wearing new clothes that were extremely difficult? Like was wearing pants super hard? Was wearing something low cut super hard? What was the the hurdle that was maybe hardest to cross as far as that? So definitely. So my first six weeks of college, I got my first pair of jeans and I was like, these are so comfortable. I'm never taking them off. <laughs> um, so wearing pants was not that hard because I was like, I had been ready to wear pants for a long time. I just had to leave my parents' house to do that. I would say wearing swimsuits and low cut things was the hardest. I wore like I bought my first bikini my senior year of college, so it took me like four whole years to get to that point. And I still am not too comfortable with a lot of cleavage. Like every time I wear something low cut or like super sleeveless, I'm like, I don't know, like somebody gonna judge me? Who am I gonna run into? <laughs> um, and sometimes I'm wearing something like that's very obviously like queer like super like queer coded like whether it's like advertising that I'm gay and I'm like oh I hope I don't run into anyone I know um, from college or whatever because I do live in the same town as my college so especially my first year after I moved back I was like nervous every time I went out in something that was obviously gay now I don't struggle as much I like once I like wear the first outfit that's like super pride things for the year after that I'm like good I just have to break into it again well I'm glad that you're working through that because you rock a blazer and oh. I'm glad that you're I'm glad that you're feeling more comfortable as time goes on being able to do that I've been talking to Sadie Sadie was telling me about how she wants to to get into like blazers and stuff like that you were telling me about that I, you? I do but also I don't go anywhere without a toddler and it's hard to pick up a kid in a blazer <laughs> That's true. But I have, I have recently purchased multiple um, button-down shirts in the style that I like to describe as a lesbian summer camp counselor. Oh yeah. So I and I've, I've really been enjoying that because I am a bisexual person who is married to a man and has a baby, and I feel like I need to be more aggressively like 
in my fashion, I need to broadcast more like, no, I'm not. I'm not straight. Like, yes, I'm married <laughs> and have a baby. Still not straight, though. I, I just my, need to like, I do be not, seen. I do not like enjoy plaid. Like, it's not something that I enjoy wearing. But my first year after I came out, I was like wearing plaid everywhere because I'm like super femme. So I was like, nobody's going to guess that I'm a lesbian. I want other days to know. And now I like kind of cringe when I look at those pictures. I'm like, I am forcing myself to wear <laughs> like it was so forced and it is not me at all. <laughs> I just I love that you have that you have dialed in on what it is that you want to wear and how you want to be seen by the world. And I I want people to check out your TikTok because you have so much good stuff on there. But your fashion <laughs> content is just I, I just think it's aspirational. I love it. Yeah, somebody asked me the other day, they're like, you should be a stylist. And I'm like, a stylist for who? <laughs> like, I figured out my own style, but that's about it. <laughs> no, what they do is they have to get you as, a, they'll do a lesbian version of Queer Eye, and you'll be like the tan equivalent. Oh, please, that would be so funny. <laughs> yeah. That would be so funny. I support this. Yeah, that that'd be great. I watch that. So, what um, what advice do you have for our listeners as far as finding their own personal style? I think all if you're drawn to a character in like a show, like maybe ask like is like if you like a character in a show, you might be because of their fashion, and like it's okay to like take inspiration from shows, like you know whatever you're like. I feel a lot of people when they like when I after let me find my words after um. The Queen's Gambit came out. A lot of people on Tinder were like, oh, you, you dress like her. And I was like, no, she dresses like me. Um, but, <laughs> but like, yeah, it's totally fine to like find a style that like you see a character wear and like find the staple pieces that they wear and like add that to your closet. Because if, if you like that character style, it might be because it looks good on you. So I, I think that's always a great point to start is like to know what you like to see on other people and see if it works on you. I mean, that is definitely how it works for me. And then staple pieces are essential. Like, have something that you know is going to bring you joy if you have it in your closet um, and that you can wear any day and just feel great about. Like, get have those. And then know your colors, like the color wheel or any color that just lightens up your day. Like, for me, I do, like, the color yellow never brings me, like, I don't like the color yellow, so I would never wear it. But, like, a good, like, burnt orange makes me feel really good. Like, pink, like, ever since I was six years old, pink was my favorite color. And everybody always said, like, you can't wear pink because you're a redhead. But I figured out how to wear pink. Like, rose gold is my color. I love wearing pink. Uh, I just had to figure out the shades that, like, worked for me. So, like, if find your favorite color and, like, grab it. Because if it's your favorite color, it probably looks great on you. That is amazing advice, um, especially, like, to find a character whose who's style you love. There are tons of blogs that'll tell you what TV or movie characters are wearing on screen. And as oh, far yeah, as having colors, I have, I do a color capsule wardrobe. So I have a list of colors and I update them every couple of years. Um, but right now I'm wearing a lot of blue, emerald green, kind of olive green, mustard yellow, little bit of burgundy and rose pink. And I only, I only buy clothes in those colors because I know that they look, I know those colors look good on me every time. Uh, and I know that most of those colors match each other. So 
I only buy clothes in those colors and then I'm not going to go off and buy a lime green <laughs> lime green shirt that's going to look terrible on me. Like I'll have the self-control not to do that, like buy a shirt I'll never wear because I know it's not one of my like five or six colors that I'm wearing right now. Yeah, I like to like when I go shopping, I like to only pick items I know are going to go with other things in my closet. Like I can find a top that I love, but if I know I don't have like a pair a skirt or like a pair of like if it's not going to look good with the dress pants I have to wear to work, I'm not going to add it. Now, if I if I love it enough, I might like look for something that goes with it. But I try to only buy things that I know will fit into my wardrobe already. That, I think that's also that's also a helpful thing. Avoiding trends like the plague. Like trends are so stupid and they cycle so fast. And like you're never gonna be able, like unless you're getting gifted everything that comes out trending wise, you're not gonna be able to keep up with it. And trends, thank you, will not wear wear. Like they will not wear. I can't, wear well they're just not going to wear well in like six months so like don't invest in trends yes absolutely don't buy just because it seems like it's the hot thing right now it's wasteful and it's not so wasteful i was like thinking about how it's made is another like question crocheting is a huge trend like i walked into forever 21 the other day it was like full of crocheted items and a machine can't make those those were all handmade by someone in like a terrible factory overseas and that's part of like it just makes you me a little like sick to my stomach and just like it just makes my stomach drop a little bit knowing that like this incredibly trendy item is not benefiting the people who are laboring to make Mm -hmm. it Yeah, I'm not completely financially able to only shop sustainable fashion yet, but that doesn't mean I can't make steps toward it. And one of the things I absolutely do is I will not buy anything crocheted from like fast fashion. I rarely buy anything new anyway. Like I I mostly shop uh, secondhand and vintage um, and then just take it to my tailor. That's oh, that's good. Most yeah. I get overwhelmed by shopping. Like if it's really crowded, I just get super overwhelmed and I can't find anything. Um, but one thing I do is like if I walk into like a fast fashion store um, or like Forever 21 and places like that, I will only buy something that I know is go- like going to fit into my wardrobe and I'm going to wear a lot. And I'm not in there to buy like something trending. Mm-hmm. Like I have... Something, oh, the dress I wore the other day, like my, that orange pink peach dress. I bought that when I worked at Disney and I have worn it three summers in a row. It is perfect. And yeah, it was probably fashion, like trending maybe the year it came out, but it has worked well. And it was from Forever 21. It was also on their sale rack. I love sale racks at fast fashion because. <laughs> See, <laughs> yeah. Nobody shops a sale like an ex fundy. We are all like the world's best sale shoppers. (laughs) See, I think fast fashion is for like, if you're going to buy something and you're going to wear it like multiple times for an entire summer and you have the the realization that at some part, it's probably just going to, at some point it's just going to fall apart, but you, you're going to wear it a lot in the time that it's still trendy and good. That's what fast fashion is for. If you're going to shop fast fashion. Yeah, exactly. And to just shop it, responsibly i guess is like i'm not banning fast fashion but fast fashion because for a lot of us it's all we can afford but use it responsibly you yeah you do your best with what you can afford try to buy stuff when you buy staples like when you buy that perfect pair of jeans or your black blazer or your white blouse or whatever try to buy that something that's a more sustainable and b is going to last and look good and not fall apart for five or ten years um, but but do your do your best. We do not all have the financial capability to be 100% sustainable in fashion. 
and you can still make small steps. So take the small steps you can. Exactly. It's all about small Great steps. advice. Oh, yeah. I just I, I feel like people get so black and white thinking about like, oh, if I can't eat 100% organic, then I'm not even going to try. And I'm just going to not even care what I eat. Or if I can't completely have a sustainable wardrobe, then I'm just going to go all out and not even try. Well, no, do, do the small steps that you can. It's I think fine. no one understands how to rework black and white lines than former fundies because yep. I don't know about you, but it was all black and white growing up and I avoid yep. black and white just for the life of me. Like I, I, like I live in gray lines. I just can't, I think making anything a hard, like fundamentalism exists outside of fundamentalism. Like, religious fundamentalism and I just try to avoid that like super charismatic everything is wrong attitude. Did you find that attitude attractive when you first got out of fundamentalism though? Because I, I I know a lot of people they will I think you know what I heard Eric Skorzynski uh, from Preacher Boys talk about this. He was talking about how people would go from uh, re- like fundamental Christianity to like fundamentalist atheism. Did you find like the going from one binary to another really um, like a a, a thing, a a trap that it would be easy for you to fall into? Is that something you had to actively resist? I did not find that because I was so harmed by those extreme attitudes. And I witnessed like that extremism hurting my siblings so much. Um, And I was constantly the compromiser between my parents and my siblings and finding a way to mediate between them. So I became like this incredibly mediation person. Um, I, I don't even know if that's proper grammar, but I like learned how to compromise for both sides in order to like live a somewhat peaceable life and not too incredibly anxious and upsetting. So I, once I was in communities that also like extreme, like I've dated someone who's like extremely liberal and like anybody who's not liberal is wrong. And I constantly was trying to like help him understand because I have conservative friends. Like there's an in-between, like nobody is completely right and no one is completely wrong. And I don't find any, I've never found any benefit in being an extremist. That was extremely well put. I want that sound clip. I've never found any benefit in being an, being an extremist. I want that that sound clip for Instagram or something. That's, that's very well put. I, I think that's a lot of a lot of what we do on our show because we we are both very liberal people, but we hold space for like if you listen to our um, abortion episode, I know that's a really hot topic at the moment. Um, but we we hold space for people who think more conservatively than we do oh, yeah. um, we can we can think people are incorrect without thinking that they're evil there are people who are evil but some people are just it's just a difference of opinion yeah and i think that goes really well with the kind of work i do because i work in tv news and local journalism and there is there are times that there is no both sides but as a journalist you have to be the judge of that in, in presenting facts from both sides of the argument and you're just presenting them. You're not supposed to take a side. And there are times I don't think there is a side. Like I don't, like I disagreed about, and we were debating whether we should interview someone who was at the January 6th insurrection. And I strongly disagreed. I did not think we should allow them to be on air. Like I didn't think they deserved a soundbite. Like I thought it would be wrong to platform their voice. But that's that's a debate in the newsroom. And that is something that as a journalist, you're constantly like weighing the pros and cons and like presenting both sides and understanding that there are every like everyone has the right to have an opinion and you're supposed to be 
unbiased in a way, but also understands your personal bias is going to affect that and how you shape the news and share information with the public. Yeah. And you're a journalist. You're not a, I mean, you are also a content creator, so you have to, so you know where the line is between those two things. And just because people want to see it doesn't mean it's responsible to. to yeah. To, and as a, as a, as a person who works in local news and a content creator, I have to be so extremely careful because even though I'm not on air talent, I, I cannot allow like my personal politics to be public on my social media. That's just like a huge thing I'm not allowed to do. It's all it's all lines and boundaries and making judgment calls. And none of those things are things that you do in a cult. Oh, yeah. You, you don't have. Sure. It's an art <laughs> that you have to look You don't have boundaries and you don't make judgment calls. Yeah, you just oh, listen yeah. to the leaders. So it's it's amazing to watch somebody else who's also going through the process of, of learning all of that. On top of everything else, Liz, you're now adding published author to your already impressive resume. Uh, I think your book is actually releasing the day after this episode drops, because this episode is dropping. Gavi, what day is this episode coming out? Uh, June me... 13th? Yeah, whatever the the second Monday in June is. And your book is coming oh, yeah, out June 14th, June 13th. right? Yes, that's yeah. right. What can you tell us about your book? So my book is a Little Mermaid retelling. I've always loved The Little Mermaid, both the Disney version and the original. And I took the original, uh, like the original Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, and I kind of retold it through Irish mythology. And just imagine what if the prince from The Little Mermaid was gay? And what if The Little Mermaid was not what you thought she was. I don't know. Wow. I, that sounds really bad, but like no, that, that sounds amazing. amazing. <laughs> I am personally uh, such a sucker for uh, fairy tale retellings, and I'm very excited about this. Um, <laughs> oh, God, thanks. Was this a story that you had in your head for a long time, or is this something that you came up with more recently? So I wrote this my sophomore year of college. I had been mulling over A Little Mermaid retelling for a while. I kept rereading the original fairy tale and trying to think, like, how would I tell the story? Like, how would I convey the emotions of the story? And I was reading Irish mythology at the time, and I read this random story from Irish mythology of this prince, the daughter, the like son of the fake queen, who gets turned into a fawn. Um, by a enemy of the queen who like curses him. So every time he's on land, he's a fawn. And then when he's like in the ocean, he's, he's like fine. So I was like, Oh my gosh, I love that. So I took that little, little story and then I like added some other Irish mythology to it and then just like wrote it from there. That, I mean, this sounds, this sounds amazing. Uh, what's the title of your book? It's called Hearts of Clay and Tempest. Great title. Yeah, I came up with the title like as soon as I finished like outlining what I was going to write. I was like, "This is the name," and it's it's been great. Okay, are you are you? So I tend I have the toxic trait of titling my works before they are really even started. Is that <laughs> is that typical for you, or is this coming up with the title early? Is that new for you? So for me, uh, so Hearts of Play and Tempest is my second book I ever wrote. My first book I wrote was a monstrosity. It was 200,000 words. And imagine if it was oh, the American Civil War meets the French Revolution meets Game of Thrones. And it had 18 main characters and was a mess. Um, that sounds I, awesome. What? Yeah, but, has, has this been published? 
anywhere? No, it's uh, it's a hot mess. It's it's okay, away. Even if, it, even if it's like okay, hold hold up. Even if it's like messy and complicated, I mean, it still might slap. That sounds yeah, awesome. I can tell you, it does not slap. Are you um, sure? Uh, I, I'm I'm quite sure. Are there are there like battles and shit? like that? That sounds. There were. I'm, there was also gonna, like forced marriages and a lot of homoerotic tension because I didn't realize I was gay and I was definitely writing gay characters who were written straight but were bros, <laughs> you know, before hoes. This sound. This sounds like a repressed fundy masterpiece. When you get the audiobook of this out, I will listen to it at the gym. I listen to audiobooks all day. I'll tell you, Liz, if you you ever publish your repressed funding masterpiece, I'll publish my repressed funding masterpiece, which is called Friday's Child and is living (laughs) on my mom's computer somewhere. (laughs) How how is this the first time hearing of this lady? Because I was too embarrassed to admit that I had a repressed funding masterpiece until Elizabeth admitted that she also has one. Yeah, don't we all have repressed funny creativity <laughs> we do we're not doing hot girl thought. summer this year we're doing release your funny book summer <laughs> <laughs> well the good news is my book is uh, i did write it i wrote heart to play in tempest my sophomore year so i did not know i was gay but i was like i am an ally i write gay characters <laughs> um, so oh um I wrote this like little gay prince and didn't even like had, I was like, I'm just such a great ally. And I absolutely love him um, and his boyfriend in the story. And I, I'm like so excited for people to meet him because I think a lot of people don't realize that they think I'm, I wrote a romance because I hear, Oh, you wrote a little mermaid retelling. So it must be like a romance. I'm like, not what you're thinking. Um, Cause in the original fairy tale, the prince is never in love with the little mermaid and she dies for him while he is in love with someone else. So, and of course he's in love with this other girl, but I just wanted to write something totally different. So while also keeping the spirit of the original story. So where can people buy your book? Is there a pre-order? Well, I guess pre-order won't matter too much, but I want to pre-order it. So please tell me. So you can buy my book on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, all the digital platforms. And my publisher actually just told me that there are still signed copies available through my publisher's website. So if you order through there, you can get a signed copy. So and what's that, that website? Uh, it would be Nymeria Publishing. Nymeria, mm-hmm. like the wolf, like like uh, Arya Stark's wolf in Game of Thrones. Yes, yes, my, that is correct. I think, That's I think it's just like NymeriaPublishing.com, but. I'm looking, double checking. I've already found I've already found it. I'm looking up your book. I'm gonna pre order it like the second we get off of our call. Is there an audiobook? No, so my publisher is an indie press. So all so audio um is like not something they have right now, maybe eventually, but we I, I would have to like they would have to it would cost more and they just haven't done that yet. So Understandable. Well, let us know what links we can put in to the show notes. We'll we'll blast you on our Instagram. We were really excited to find out your book was coming out the day after we had already planned to put out your episode. I know, that is so, so I hope a lot of people will order it and enjoy it. Yeah, it's going to be on the exciting, bestseller list. Well, and I might even get there without cheating. <laughs> wow, that's a that's a. Uh, I make fun of like Donald Trump Jr., who like bought two hundred thousand copies of his own book to get on the New York Times bestseller right. list. Well, we are gonna we are gonna pitch in and do our part to get you. Up there. <laughs> I appreciate it. Everybody who buys Liz Hunter's book, 
um i don't know what we're, what we're gonna do sadie what are we gonna buy liz hunter's book or um i'll fight you i don't know if um, you if you buy her book and post an instagram story tag us we'll repost you on our stories yeah that's good and i'll repost you on my stories you gotta tag It'll be me an instagram story party <laughs> yes it's gonna be one of those annoying authors who's like look at all the people holding my book we're gonna we're gonna do that i always think it's fun because then like i want to be on somebody's instagram story <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Liz, for giving us your time today. This has been an extremely enjoyable conversation. You are an excellent advice giver on top of everything else and being such a generally cool person. Would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you on social media? Yeah, so I'm everywhere online at that Liz Hunter. So T-H-A-T-L-I-Z-H-U-N-T-E-R. I have a TikTok, I have Instagram, and a YouTube channel, and I'm just over there, just living my life, being online, having fun. So, kind being of a mix out of a cult and having <laughs> an awesome life. <laughs> yeah, just being chaotically messy on the internet. Well, thank you again so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed chatting with y'all. It's been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.